This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Hello, everybody. Hello. Happy Sunday. I hope you all are having a great week. I know it's been kind of a bizarre week, to say the least, a sad week in a lot of cases, so uh, with all the stuff going on in the world, but hopefully this can be a little bit of distraction to your day, even though it is kind of, you know, I don't do, like I have said multiple times in this medium that I don't do fluff, but it's not, you know, shit going on in the world fluff usually. I try to avoid that and leave all the depressing shit to all the depressing people. So on this topic. It is kind of something to do with the world, but it's something that I think is on an individual basis that is perpetuating out throughout the entire world at large. So I think that it's very, very important for a lot of us, especially young people, to understand this as we're coming into a very bizarre climate in terms of this topic. We've existed in a very bizarre climate in terms of this topic. And I think just kind of getting a sense about what we're actually dealing with here, how it manifests specifically to us, how it manifests to other people, how the world perceives it, how the world did perceive it and now is perceiving it again. It's really, really interesting. So I think that it's just kind of something we need to look deeper into in order to see really what this is versus what people are portraying it as. So without further ado, there we go. So if there's one constant about our current worldly situation, it's that we exist for the sole purpose of making a complete and utter asses of ourselves. We fuck up all the time. We make a lot of mistakes. We lampoon ourselves over Twitter and embarrass ourselves willingly on TikTok. We don't care about these things because it makes us feel like we have individual value. Like we're not somehow not a worthless speck of shit that God had the misfortune of getting on the left corner of his right shoe. We do these things because we see that through our failures, greater value can be realized. We do these things because we realize that the path to ascendancy and self-actualization is not around, but through. Or do we? In the waning months of 2021, political commentator Ben Shapiro began to veer from his traditional creed of destroying people for opposing political views. Instead, he decided to take a remarkably nonpartisan angle to address a topic that he viewed should concern every American citizen. It had been simmering for quite some time and was being, beginning to boil over, a topic that had infected every area of life in a nefarious stranglehold. Risk. In a sentiment expressed in a singular tweet and expanded upon in a column in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette of all places, Shapiro's sentiment read as such, quote, The unwillingness of Western citizens to live with any levels of risk, economic, health, or personal, spells the end of civilization. Innovation requires risk-taking. Building for the future requires risk-taking. Complete risk aversion leads to decadence and collapse, end quote. 
Say and think what you want about Ben Shapiro and his politics, but it's unquestionable that this is a man who can speak to risk-taking. He left a cozy law firm job to become a syndicated columnist and radio show host. None of his books sold particularly well for years. He's written over 10 of them. He started a media company in an industry that has horrifically high barriers to entry. He married very young. He unintentionally roasted the woman he married very young for having a dry-ass pussy and his ripping of Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion's wet-ass pussy. Now, any of those risks could have thrown Shapiro and his corresponding life into the toilet. But it didn't. Probably due to the usual mixture of good luck and hard work that he displayed, and got. The remarkable thing about someone as famous and notorious as Shapiro, however, is quite the opposite from a lot of people are used to seeing. He seems, by all metrics, to live an incredibly happy life. He loves his wife and his kids. He loves his job. He doesn't really give much of a shit about what people think about him. He's, by all outside measures, on top of the world. This is quite a stunning feat for a person working in political media. Political media have a horrible nature of chewing those that enter its seductive maw to pieces within seconds and shitting them out in minutes. CNN did this literally, literally about two of their, literally everyone but about two of their staff, including Jeffrey Tubin, our recently resident famous CNN employee, for about the past month. Fox News did something similar when Roger Ailes groped every blonde woman that walked within a 50-foot radius of him. So, why have people like Shapiro and a few others been able to escape? People across societies and throughout world history have had large problems with risk-taking forever. Shapiro's point is both important and pointed. It's correct in his assertion that it's part of a larger cultural moment. He's also correct that it's a massive problem that it's happening. Something is going on with our appetite for the unknown, which is costing us in numerous ways. Shapiro posits a popular and oft-used jump-off point for his claims. COVID. Throughout the past two years, people have used COVID as an excuse for just about everything. Taking quote-unquote mental health days, reasons for teachers to stay home and teach virtually, pulling the quote I might kill grandma card when you're confronted by your husband after going to a family event where your bitch of a sister-in-law waits to fill you in on her life you couldn't give a singular fuck about. COVID has become so ingrained in our society that some people have let it manipulate and taint every aspect of their lives. But that does not mean that those excuses are valid. A lot of them, as it turns out, are vain and stupid. They're just, just they're described. Excuses. There's hardly a correlation that leads to the causation of any one of these things, particularly now that the pandemic is over. The data simply doesn't add up. COVID is no longer a valid excuse when COVID proves to be very little hindrance on anything, particularly when you're young and in the prime of your health. But I would agree that the beer virus does have an outsized effect on the one thing that undergirds most of those things the application of risk in our lives. The sad thing is that the disease itself is not what has scared people. It's been this near-obsessive fear-mongering of malicious individuals with agendas that have warped society's perception of the disease to be something that it, frankly, is not. It has wrecked the lives of an untold number of Americans, with consequences that, unfortunately for some, will most likely last a lifetime. This was the point that Shapiro was trying to hammer home. Due to this trend of blowing fear into America by proxy of the COVID crisis, the appetite for risk for most Americans has shrunk considerably. Fewer people are starting families and buying homes. Fewer people are desiring to own, well, anything. No one wants to interact with one another anymore, as exemplified by Meta's metaverse. Our levels of exposure to nearly everything are dropping at precipitous rates. My generation, Gen Z, is adversely affected by this trend more than anyone else, simply because we've known nothing else, like I alluded to before. I came of age within the time of pandemic, as did most to all of my colleagues. We don't know how to be an adult because adulthood has been cuddled into submission by forces that we don't want others to experience it. Or that don't want others to experience it, excuse me. 
The first two posts of the Critical Gender series encapsulate this trend nicely. Men and women, aka the entire population of the world, have slipped to the slope of conformity with incredible speed. Not a lot of people, quote, express themselves anymore, at least not legitimately. When they usually do, it always seems inauthentic versus authentic. A lot of times they're hit with the rock bottom of shame and scurry back into, their fi into the firing line. Most can't take a look into the abyss. The reason that Ben Shapiro saw this as a gigantic problem for others and a massive source of solace for himself is that taking risk has inherent value in our society. There's a large argument to be made about the utility of leveraging them to gain greater benefit into the future. That's the story of delayed gratification, can't talk today, and sacrifice, the greatest psychological innovation that human beings have ever created. Sacrifice is so brilliant because it invokes hope. It involves knowingly giving up something of decent value for the short term for the prospect of gaining something of greater value in the future. This is a remarkable thing when you look at it through the lens of human nature. Human beings are wired to avoid hardship and take the path of least resistance, as we've talked about numerous times. The act of sacrifice and delayed gratification deliberately throws a fat middle finger to the face of human nature and, instead, goes around it to complete the cycle in full. Greater value is often reaped when sacrifice is undertaken correctly, which is a massive feat in and of itself. However, this goes beyond just getting something out of putting a plan into action. There's a deeper meaning to risk, one that's both much more existential and much more essential. Taking effective risks is a massive step in not only becoming a more successful person, but also a better person. And not just only in one area, but in all areas of your life. To shun taking risks, by consequence, is to shun the very premise of improvement itself. The act of stasis is the act of complacency, which leads to you staying exactly where you are. All risks, no matter how small, are straying from the ultimate method of the path of least resistance. Staying the same. Doing nothing is the easiest way to slip into conformity, to turn yourself into an amorphous and pathetic ball of boringness that simply does what you're told and are told that you like it. You really don't. You might even secretly hate yourself for it. But at least it's better than the alternative. This is wrong. Taking risk is an essential thing, as Shapiro pointed out. A complacent world filled with uncomplacent people with bad intentions is not a reality we want to get sucked into. But we always must remember that the non-tyrannical collective must start with the non-tyrannical self. To begin the journey into the non-tyrannical self, we must first look at what risk is and why people avoid it. After, we'll discuss what both the right and wrong approaches to risk are, and finally, to turn the tide on the wrong approaches to risk, we will discuss methods to implement the right approach to risk into your own life. But a bad method to start this off, to start this off very, very strongly, on all possible metrics, would be to insinuate that your wife, in any way, has a dry-ass pussy. George Armstrong Custer was the American dream. Brave, dashing, and intelligent, he had the post-antebellum United States by the balls. Custer first came to prominence as a Union soldier during the Civil War, hailing from the great state of Ohio, biased. Custer has a large role in the success of the Battle of Bull Run. Catching the jive of General George McClellan, Custer began to frantically network with the upper echelons of the Union Army. Two years later, Custer was promoted to Brigadier General at the remarkable age of 23. He served in several major battles to close out the war, including the Battle of Gettysburg. The thing that distinguished Custer from all other rising stars in the Union Army was his frantic aggression. Custer would simply not stop coming. 
Custer was promoted to Major General two years later, and at the age of 25, helped to shellac the Army of Northern Virginia, headed by Robert E. Lee throughout the Deep South. Custer's pursuit among his comrades eventually led to Lee and the Confederate Army surrendering to Abraham Lincoln and the Union Army in the Appomattox Courthouse in 1865. That's actually Grant, so correction. Ending the Civil War and thrusting the United States into the future. When the Union Army disbanded, Custer was re-ranked and shuffled to become a commander of the 7th U.S. Cavalry Regiment. Custer, much like his time in the Civil War, was instructed with one singular purpose. Crush anything that gets in your way. He was very good at doing that, and his troops rallied around him with a fanatic loyalty. However, the people he was instructed to crush were a much different enemy than Confederate soldiers. They were much more crafty, and had a much more legitimate reason for being angry. Native Americans. Custer, along with many others, purpose was to expand the United States Empire westward. To do this, Custer and the others had to run through Indian country to establish territory. They weren't simply, ta simply taking something back, like they did to their Confederate brethren in the Civil War. Instead, they were taking something from. American Indians had not asked the European settlers to come to their land and stay there. They were caught off guard. They felt like they were being mistreated, and in many ways they were correct. But this led to other things as well. Things that proved to be advantageous in their eventually futile resistance to the American invasion of their land. Resource <clears throat> Oof, excuse me. Resourcefulness, strategic thinking, innovation, and brutality. Oh, the brutality. Yeah, it turns out the whole scalping shit you've heard of wasn't just a Hollywood trope, it was a very real thing. A debt was being paid, and American tr Indian tribes wanted that debt to be paid in blood. Indian tribes fought hard to keep what was theirs. They gave the United States military hell anytime they ventured inside their territory. The United States had so many advantages, manpower, advanced weaponry, seasoned combat veterans. But the tribes had something else. Knowledge. They weren't trying to take over U.S. territory. America was trying to take over theirs. That means they had to play by their rules. They had to go in and win on their non-home turf. This is a tremendous advantage. Commanded by military geniuses such as Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull, Native American tribes rained fire and brimstone down as the United States Army encroached on their lands. They were losing the war, but they made every battle on the American frontier as bloody and as ugly as possible. They wanted it to be a war of attrition, which it turned out to be. To combat this, the commanders of the U.S. Army knew of one man fit directly for the job. George Custer. Custer was just barely hinged enough to be the crazy one to go charging after the Indian tribes while still maintaining loyalty to the United States government. Custer was a romantic. He wanted to pursue glory and eternal life, even after his death. Putting the literal nail in the coffin for American Indians was just the way to do it. But, early enough, even Custer struggled. He shot his own men when they ran in fear and was court-martialed. He too was shaken by the brutality that some tribes showed towards their enemies. However, Custer saw an opportunity. The aforementioned Sitting Bull, a rallying member of the Sioux tribes, consolidated forces and made camp at Little Bighorn, a valley in southern Montana. With multiple tribes formed into one, Custer and his men followed them, hoping to crush them in one fell swoop. Now, if you took any American history class ever, you know what happens next. Custer got absolutely crushed. Sitting Bull and his forces divided Custer's, broke their strategy, and mercilessly killed and scalped most of all of them. It was the biggest and most humiliating defeat in Indian country throughout the entire conquest of the American frontier. But not only was it all of those things, it also completely destroyed the reputation of General George Custer. 
What had once been a nearly flawless portrayal of an American military icon was now a disgrace. He wasn't the man who conquered the Confederate South and blazed a trail through unknown American terrain to claim it for the United States. He was a loser. He shot his own men when they disobeyed him. He got his entire army slaughtered by adversaries that primarily used sticks and stones as their weaponry. None of what ma happened before mattered. Well, hopefully not as bad as getting scalped, Custer's story is a cautionary tale. It shows, more than anything else, what humans have to lose. And the answer to that question is everything. Humans can lose everything with one decision. It has happened more times than one can count in more ways than one can imagine. You probably know a few of these people in your personal life. They didn't think something was that big of a deal. They did that thing, and that thing turned around and bit them in the ass so hard that their head spun so fast they couldn't stop. Now they're just confused. They don't know what happened. The definition of the word risk is, quote, the possibility of loss or injury, someone or something that creates or suggests a hazard, end quote. As the definition shows, this is a very broad landscape. The possibilities are nearly endless because, according to the definition, those possibilities are linked to loss and injury. And, by consequence, everything that has a remote account of meaning embedded within it has the possibility of loss or injury. As we talked about before, risk was a lot more risky back then. We used to have to put ourselves in a lot more dangerous situations in order for us to thrive and get by. And now, by and large, we do not have to do that. We can gain access to things that were once scarce through relative ease. We can create our own luck and opportunity. We don't have to attempt to stab each other with dull rocks anymore, and these are all good things. It used to make complete sense to avoid these things because things were scarier back then. We had little, no, little to no protection or people to depend on. The mindset of scarcity, which is the correct mindset to adopt because next to nothing is abundant, was set into overdrive back then. We had no internet. We knew nothing about what the outer world and separation from our individual one was like. All we had was the here and the now. There was no time nor patience for anything else. It would have been a distraction, a waste of time. However, it also made complete sense to occasionally venture into the unknown. To quote Jordan Peterson, it's always useful to have one foot in chaos and one foot in order. You need to know what is real, but you also need to know where they can be improved. This analogy permeates every possibility in the world, which is why so many people, whether they like it or not, are drawn to Peterson's work. This argument is the crux of, of the liberal and conservative political divide. It also shows the ridiculousness of the obsessive demonization of each group onto one another. We need things that exist and are real, but we always need to be looking for ways to improve them. Anyone who stays in a decaying institution because they fear change is an idiot. Anyone who tries to change everything about an institution that functions properly is equally an idiot. This is not a hard thing to realize, but everything gets all fucky when you throw political allegories, allegories into the equation. Much can be said about many other things, but this is the lowest hanging fruit of which to pick from. And following this logic, and given the state of the world at the time, it made complete sense to occasionally venture into the unknown. Only in chaos could you discover some, da some dangerously amazing things. And we did. Fire burns people, but it can also do a lot of other cool shit. Electricity can fry you in seconds, but it also can power the entire world. There are so many examples that have this dichotomy. All ingenuity, innovation, and progress come from the willingness to go there. Most of the time, these people are called crazy. You're really going to stick your foot over that hot and bright thing? You're really going to tie a fucking key to a kite and fly it in a lightning storm? You're really going to try to put that thing in that hole? But people, God love the people, they try. They're willing to make an ass or sexual philanderer, whichever floats your boat, but um ching, out of themselves for the betterment of their lives. 
Everything from entrepreneurship to war strategies were birthed because of risks. But as we saw with the downright dismal war strategies of George Custer, sometimes they don't play out. Failure, particularly catastrophic failure, leads to immense social, societal and reputational risk, particularly in the age of amplification in which we live. George Custer and his family, who we love dearly, lost every bit of that as soon as he decided to attempt to take Little Bighorn. But on the flip side, think of all the good that has come from the people that made it big. It benefits them, most certainly, but it also benefits the world in a lot of large cases. Even though Custer shit the bed at Little Bighorn, his role at Gettysburg and throughout the Civil War could not be understated. I think most people would argue that freeing the slaves around the world would be considered a unanimously good thing to most to all people. Risk has the potential to devastate you for the rest of your life. It's a two-sided coin with both advantages and disadvantage that it, disadvantages that have nearly endless possibilities. But in those possibilities, we see one constant. It is the most important catalyst of living a better life. By consequence of my definition, this is true. But like everything else, there is a right and wrong approach that must be equally followed and avoided. It is in this walk down the path that we either gain or lose everything that risk can provide us. It is completely what we make of it. Now, to talk more about paths, we turn to the guy who invented the path. Our friend Morgan Housel has told us numerous times about the importance of tail events, both in statistics and in life. Tail events are the far end of the bell curve in a normal distribution. They are the things that are such statistical outliers that they don't fall within the mainstream, but so far out that they can carry the statistical group to points in the graph that they could have never thought possible. Tails drive everything, according to Morgan Housel and statistics, frankly. These are the extreme events in our lives, the outliers, that dramatically influence everything within the normal distribution. You meet tens of thousands of guys in the course of your life. You only end up marrying one, usually. You can read hundreds of books and only be influenced by two of them. You can fuck a million times, okay, maybe that not many, or not that many, and only get pregnant once. But your husband, your mindset, and your children are really fucking important. So important, in fact, that you end up molding the rest of your life around them in order to support them into the future. You do this because these things have inherent value within them. Value is gravity. Everything that surrounds it becomes naturally attractive to you. As the human race, we seek value in nearly everything that we do. When we find it, it's very rare that we allow it to be let go. Therefore, when we get sucked into the value vortex, we don't want to escape, and we shouldn't want to escape, by the way. Tail events, however, are not just things. When you look at them in more depth, there is a pattern that must be explored. Think of the examples in previous paragraphs. Meeting a husband developing your opinions and thoughts about how you perceive the world, having children. All of them can have a weight attached to them, or have a weight attached to them, actually. Something so inherent to them, they can all be unanimously associated as the same things. Risks. It's very risky to do all of those activities and all the activities that are like them. They're all very hard. If you fuck them up, you'll feel the ramifications for the rest of your life. They can define you, whether or not your general custer status or not. We're all celebrities within our own sphere of influence. It doesn't matter if you're featured on an Instagram reel or not. You matter to somebody, and hopefully a good amount of someone's. Your life affects them whether you want to admit it or not. And odds are, you want that life to be good. And if not a totally selfish cock, you'll want that life to be good both for yourself and for others. The best things in life are not free. They come from taking risks. So the obvious approach would be to take some. 
Take some swings. Get out there and see what you can do. Go out and fuck those tail events in the ass. But we cannot fuck all of them in the ass. There is, per usual, a dichotomy that must be balanced. Which brings us to our person who likes paths. Well, two people, but one much more intense and or obnoxious than the other one. Jocko Willink and Leif Babin first came to mainstream fame when they wrote their famous Extreme Ownership, a book about taking ownership in everything that resides to, in your world to give you the maximum chance to take control of your life. It was a very good and very successful book. It's influenced much of my writing and much about the way I and a lot of others think about interacting with the world around them. But it wasn't perfect. Babin and Willink, after catching on to how popular the book was, began to notice a problem. Even though they stressed maximum ownership over their worlds, they saw people begin to, naturally, take it too far. People were stretching themselves too thin and overextending themselves. They were trying to control the uncontrollable, which is never a smart thing to do. So, instead of simply letting people go crazy off a flawed idea, Babin and Willing submitted a revision in the form of another book, The Dichotomy of Leadership. The point of the popular sequel book was to dispel the myth of people leaning too heavily in another direction so they could avoid compromising the whole purpose of the mission itself. You cannot be unbalanced. If you willingly put yourself in a position where you are, you will have to deal with the consequences should the scales begin to rip in another direction. Tip, by the way. <laughs> in the context of our discussion, one particular topic that the two men touched on is especially pertinent. Early on in the book, one of the most important dichotomies that bleed into a lot of others is the balance between being aggressive and being reckless. Aggressive simply means being active in pursuing your goal and what you want to accomplish. Being reckless simply means charging armor with no idea of what you're charging into. Being former Navy SEAL commanding officers, both Babin and Willink knew this topic and its importance quite well. However, if the two men want to shorten the topic, they would have only needed, again, one word to explain it. Risk. This dichotomy of aggression versus recklessness is the exact same as the dichotomy of risk. To get anything done in life that is of value, risk is needed. Constructive aggression, the act of going forward towards your goal with purpose and vigor, is needed. No one gets anything done sitting on their ass and doing nothing. You have to punch the clock and go to work. You have to constructively instigate with others in order to get all the right people rowing in the same direction. You need to have an aligned vision of going to take what is yours. These are all things that are necessary, particularly in the realm of leadership that Babin and Willink dwell in. Without all of these actions being put into place, this is not an effective team. It's simply a hamstrung group. But it could be worse. If you decide to go after something but are reckless in doing so, the consequences can, and almost always are, far greater. When you decide to take on more than you can chew, especially when there are real things at stake that can harm people, their livelihoods, and their loved ones, you unleash the potential of doing a lot of damage to them and to yourself. You can burn yourself out and leave all people who depend on you in the open and completely vulnerable. This is the whole George Custer getting his entire army decimated and scalp thing that we mentioned earlier. There are a lot of reasons that people can throw the switch from aggression to recklessness, but the one that reigns the most supreme of all time is the pursuit of excess. And our friend General Custer is the perfect example of this. He did not know when to check in with himself and see if he was doing what he was doing was valuable to him. Remember, he had everything. He was handsome. He had the love of his country, his family, and his troops. He was a war hero. He helped to reunify the country and play a major role in taking out the Confederate army. He could have been content and gone about his life. But it wasn't enough for him. He succumbed to diminishing returns of value. He didn't know where to stop. Not only did he have to defeat the Confederates, but he had to defeat the Indian tribes as well. He didn't just want to be all those things listed above. 
he wanted to be selfish and pursue even more. He could have made it big, but what Custer didn't realize is that when you swing big, you also have the potential to miss big. And miss big he did. His whole crew, again, got scalped in the process. All because of that one decision. Now, I've never met anyone of Native American descent before, but I'm pretty sure they don't go around scalping people anymore, at least in public. The consequences for taking risk in the current day are, like we said earlier, much reduced, and thank God for that. Likely, the worst scenario that could play out from this type of behavior is you acting like an intolerable douche. This is no, no small thing, because no one wants to associate with an intolerable douche. This can manifest itself in multiple different ways. Guys who step into sales and can't turn it off and the clock hits five. Finance and STEM majors who can't shut the fuck up about how everyone's lives are easier than theirs. Instagram women who shove bikinis up their assholes to get men to be attracted to them but not fuck them. But the worst of all is when you willingly deprecate yourself in the process. In my sophomore year of college, I had a roommate that was perhaps the most intolerable douche I've ever met in my entire life. He was a relatively pathetic and unimpressive person. He was incredibly hairy and loud and obnoxious. He didn't take care of himself. He was a fat slob. He didn't groom himself properly. He listened to Drake's music a little bit too much. He was a nice enough guy, but only when he could get something from you. This was particularly true in his approach to women. Being the resident failure in this medium of talking to women, maybe I should be staying out of this lane, or this lane in this scenario. But for the sake of women across the world, this must be called out. Never say I'm not an advocate for feminism. This man's strategy with women was to come onto them incredibly strong. And I'm an advocate for polarization when it comes to dating, but there's a difference between knowing what your values are and being a complete fucking creep. He would invade personal space in the regular. He would ask them very intimate and personal questions only after knowing them for five minutes. He wouldn't let up in his approach at all, so much so that women were so intimidated that they would let their guards down when he was around just to get it over with. And, to his credit, very occasionally this method would work. Miraculously. They would talk to him just to get this off his back. But they wouldn't respect him. He wouldn't be a man. He was simply a pest. They made no bones about showing him for the most part, too. Afterwards, when my roommate would react, he would see them not as women he was attracted to, but something else. Bitches. They were bitches, apparently, if they didn't want to fuck him after he creeped them into next week. They didn't deserve the hairy and sweaty wannabe of a biomedical engineer or something like that. But my roommate obviously missed the point. Women are attracted to men for their looks, sure. But is it the defining factor? Absolutely not. It was his personality that did him in. Women don't like cucks. They like men who act like men. They would prefer that their pussy be the only pussy within the relationship. Men obliterate this possibility when they don't tiptoe through the minefield, but rather steamroll and make and nuke everything in their sight. Overaggression in one area leads to universal devastation, both for you and the parties you are aggressive towards. It's something to always be cognizant of when you go to respond to a different scenario with action. But the other approach is always wrong. Is also wrong, I should say. That other approach is the current approach, which is simply to take no risk at all. No risk means stagnation. In an ever-changing world, this is not good. It will lead to disastrous consequences. At least my roommate went for the chance of getting women to fuck him. He went about doing so atrociously, but ace forever do exist, and hint, they do not. But sometimes it's nice to pretend. Just because we choose to slow down and go slow does not mean that everyone else will. There are always going to be people who are natural strivers and want to do well. They will not slow down or stop for you. They will simply keep going and up and over you until they lap you and you tap out. You'll look old and outdated. You won't be viable. 
But being viable means you were able to be used for some purpose. That purpose, as mentioned before, is developed from exposing yourself to your risk tolerance and seeing what the possibilities are. Whether those are massive tail events or small steps towards them, they are undeniably the things that need to be emphasized and focused on should you want to participate in productive living. Andrew Yang has an interesting analogy about this in relation to the United States government. It's old and outdated. I think that we all, no matter if we agree with Yang or not, can agree on that. There are processes and systems that probably should be replaced by this point. Yang's analogy of the modern United States government is that it's akin to trying to run the modern space program on the technology used in the launch of the inaugural space program back in the 1960s. I think there's a lot of truth to that. A lot has changed since then. However, there is also the other side to consider. Too much change in governance is not a good thing. People don't care much for it at all. Just ask Canada. Their government went from a democracy to an autocratic and totalitarian dictatorship practically overnight. Australians can say something similar. It's truly a remarkable thing. Both of the reasons why we're failing, but for two different reasons. It simply doesn't make sense. But both can be substituted, either in positive or negative fashion. The right approach to risk and cutting out the two inverses of the bad is a tremendously important skill to develop. To develop both states of mind, we turn to the only one who could provide such wisdom. The one who lives in a pineapple under the sea. Now, as we've hopefully established throughout the course of this post, risk is everywhere in life. It is how you do anything meaningful and get anywhere productive. It is how we do one thing and, by consequence, how we do everything. At least everything of value. Everything has a price attached to it. The question we must ask is whether or not we're willing to pay for it. There are two broader components to this question, both of which will be answered in turn. The first question is, how much? The second question, how often? As for the first question, the key point is discerning our overall risk tolerance. What are we willing to accept that could willingly come into our lives and bite us in the dick? As for the second question, the key point is discerning our overall risk exposure. How many times are we willing to put ourselves in hard harm's way in order to potentially reap something of greater value that resides on the other side? And breaking down these two questions of our larger central question, we can begin to chart a rational and reasonable path forward to navigate this sometimes paralyzing dilemma. One of the greatest scenes in modern television history displays this quite well. The camping episode of SpongeBob SquarePants is one of the funniest episodes of television most of us have ever seen. It's absurd in almost every metric. It's ridiculous, not including that of the show itself, is off the charts. There's no way a show like this, an episode like this, should be funny. But yet it is. The premise of the episode goes something like this. SpongeBob and Patrick decide to go camping. Squidward is very happy about this, because he thinks he's going to get peace and quiet. However, they decide to go camping right outside of his house, to which Squidward goes out to stop them. He eventually ends up joining them, singing the campfire song song and getting flaming marshmallows spit on his face by Patrick. When he attempts to play his clarinet badly, SpongeBob attempts to suffocate him to stuff out the sound of throwing one of the, most, one of the aforementioned marshmallows into the clarinet. Referencing the fake publication Fake Science Monthly, SpongeBob and Patrick tell Squidward that playing a clarinet badly in the wilderness, among other things, attracts sea bears. Squidward, not believing in such things, does everything that SpongeBob and Patrick deliberately tell him not to do. A sea bear then shows up and repeatedly mauls him. However, he spares SpongeBob and Patrick, who have claimed safety by residing in an anti-sea bear circle drawn by a stick in the dirt. Squidward, after being mauled repeatedly, finally joins them in the circle. 
only to realize that he is not wearing anti-sea rhinoceros underwear. Sea rhinoceroses are attracted by the sounds of a sea bear attack. One eventually shows up, and the screen cuts to black just as Squidward resigns to his fate. The two approaches to risk in this ridiculous scene could not be more different. SpongeBob and Patrick are aggressive, but not reckless. Camping in the wilderness, even if it's only a couple feet from their respective pineapple and rock, and in a cartoon, by the way, is a dangerous thing. Seaborne land animals can come and maul you. But they wanted to go camping, so they took their proper precautions, knowing how to draw an effective anti-sea bear circle and wearing anti-sea rhinoceros undergarments. In doing so, they were able to accomplish something of value, going camping with a friend, while avoiding the potential fit pitfalls of doing so, getting repeatedly mauled by seaborne land animals. Squidward, by contrast, did the exact opposite of this. Not only did he choose to go camping, but he was not prepared to do so at all. He brought no materials. He played his clarinet badly in the wilderness. He didn't listen to the people that knew what they were doing. He deliberately did everything wrong that he should have not done and ended up getting repeatedly mauled by seaborne land animals as a consequence. Instead of being aggressive, he was reckless. Now, is this a stupid example to cite? Perhaps. But sometimes learning from a stupid yet hilarious thing, like an episode of a children's television show, is something so rudimentary that we can reset ourselves to where we actually should be. Sometimes the answers to our questions are so basic and fundamental that we don't look at them. We consider embarrassing or, quote, beneath us, whatever that means. But it's not. We're very complex creatures. We're also, in other respects, very simple ones. It's all about finding which target to hit. Our first step we can do to combat this is what SpongeBob and Patrick did. Test your tolerance. A very astute observation of the camping episode, and a brilliant one by the writers, is the location of where the two friends went camping. Remember, Squidward thought that they were going to some faraway place, like an undersea forest. Instead, they went right outside of SpongeBob's pineapple. They didn't go to a galaxy far, far away. They only went a couple, couple feet from their front door. Squidward criticizes them for this. It's not really camping, he says. But it is, actually. They're going out of their homes and spending the night in the wilderness. That counts as camping. It's not Les Stroud, but it's not a 50-year-old Karen, either. SpongeBob and Patrick could have easily done that, even though it ended very badly It could ended very badly in another episode, which is also hilarious. But instead, they chose to take a closer vantage point while still having a good time. In other words, SpongeBob and Patrick knew their risk tolerance. So they decided to test it by inching out a little bit from the outer realm of order into the realm of chaos. They didn't want to stay on a beach chair, but they didn't want to drown themselves either. Squidward did not do this at all. Not only did he drown himself, but he did so by jumping headfirst into a kiddie pool. I'm not sure if the sea bear or sea rhinoceros broke his neck, but he came pretty close to doing so, I would imagine. This is the perfect way for anyone to diagnose risk for any scenario. You should not dive headfirst into something. You can't put all your eggs in one basket. You must be aggressive, but not rigid. There's a reason why the phrase is step into the unknown and not put your, put your hand into a food processor. One is a mild action to assess a situation. The other is a Hail Mary attempt to get a Luke Skywalker-esque mechatronic arm. But like any sort of tolerance, it can either be built up or torn down. Some tolerances are good, others are bad. The tolerance to take more risk, should it not be reckless, definitely falls into the good category. So, in your pursuit of further risk and further achievement in a certain area of life, you must gradually move the goalpost on your tolerance for risks. This is something that cannot stay static unless you want to stay static. It always needs to move and shift in order to get better, faster, and stronger. Daft Punk, Kanye West, boy. After, actually, Daft Punk doesn't talk, but okay, I'm going to say it in their voice anyway. 
you need to know where your boundaries are. You need to know what your limits are. They act as a generalized barometer to your risk tolerance. You need to know where they are, where they are so you are not both underachieving and not pushing too far. They are your metric system of what you can base your life decisions on in this regard. Bad metrics lead to bad decisions being made. It's a wise thing not to make bad decisions in the realm of risk. There are countless examples of people who have. It usually doesn't end up being a very pretty sight. Just like anything that is worthwhile, it must be tested. And your risk tolerance is exactly the same. You can pull away if it becomes too much, but you never know either way if you don't try. Putting on a facade of bravery is not the same as being brave. That's something only you can know. You live in and occupy the real estate that compromises your mind, comprises your mind. Whether you are happy with its usage is up to you and you alone. Humans get a lot of satisfaction, whether we realize it or not, from doing hard things. Expanding your tolerance for risk in a responsible fashion definitely falls into that category. It is a hard pursuit, but it is also a notable and worthwhile one. Then, the next reasonable question is, how should we push against those boundaries? Again, this is a very hard thing to do. It is not for the faint of heart. If you want to improve and get better, there is a definite and notable cost associated with that. There is no free lunch. Boundaries must be taken by force. They will not give in to you willingly, no matter how much you want them to. Considering all factors of this dilemma, there is only one way to push it. Constructive aggression. It's been a hot minute since we talked about this made-up term of mine, like probably about 10 or so pages or 20 minutes ago, so let's do a recap. Constructive aggression is the act of pressing forward in the pursuit of an objective without compromising yourself unnecessarily. You move forward towards whatever that thing is tactically. You don't undermine yourself by doing pointless and or stupid shit. You go forward. You charge the hill. You just make sure you're not falling off a cliff and bringing a shit ton of firepower with you, respectively. Pushing the boundaries of your risk tolerance is a very interesting thing. It is a very uncomfortable thing to do. Humans do not like to do uncomfortable things. Stretching yourself beyond your capacity and willingly put your, putting yourself into the jaws of harm definitely counts as one of those things. If you were taking this information and internalizing it as a person of yesteryear, you would think that person belongs in an asylum. The world is dangerous enough. Why are you deliberately doing something to make it more so? What these people back then didn't have the luxury of realizing is that there is a difference between harm and uncomfortability. Harm is one thing. Uncomfortability is another. Harm is a byproduct of uncomfortability. Many things can harm you, and uncomfortability is generally a gateway into its clutches. The thing we must be very careful of doing, our, doing during our evaluation process is where we go over the line into a paralysis instead of an uncomfortability. Remember, you, just keep, you must keep moving during this process. If you're completely frightened of what you have to do, odds are you're never going to do it. It's very hard to stare down what seems like an insurmountable task right in front of your face and tell yourself that you can still do it, because odds are that's a recipe for failure. One of my favorite Jordan Peterson stories is when he had to deal with a patient of his who was afraid of elevators. At the time, Peterson had his clinical practice set up outside of Toronto, Canada. And if you didn't hear, Toronto is a pretty fucking big place. There are a lot of tall buildings. Those lots of tall buildings require a lot of elevators. Not being able to enter into one would be a pretty debilitating thing. But instead of forcing the woman into an elevator and making her choke on her own fear, Peterson tried a different tactic. He knew she couldn't do it right from the jump. So he simply asked her if she could stand to look at a picture of an elevator instead. The woman said yes. Peterson then asked her if he could look at a video of the, or she could look at a video of an elevator door opening and closing. And the woman said no. It scared her too much. So Peterson pulled back. It was a step too far. 
he didn't want to destabilize her mindset. That was that much improvement was already very far ahead from where she once was. Peterson and his client kept jabbing away, firing off small punch after small punch to chip away her fear. Eventually, she fully gave way. She was no longer afraid of elevators. She probably still would have been if Peterson did force her to get into the elevator right off the jump. Fear is something to be tackled one step and one day at a time. The reason that our fears scare us is because they seem like something we cannot overcome. When we see that we can, we become much more in our minds, and our fears become less. This is all great stuff. It works. It's been proven to work numerous times in numerous different situations. But it is not constructive to other people if it is just an isolated incident. You getting over a fear of risk, the worst approach to that subject, is a great thing. You should be proud of yourself for doing so. But what would make it better if you were to, is if you were to help somebody else. The non-tyrannical collective does begin with the non-tyrannical self. But the non-tyrannical selves must help one another, enable that mindset. All things are better when you can teach someone how to do something. Telling a person to do something is one thing. Teaching is very different, for all the right reasons. If you are forced by your own admissions to be held accountable for your word and what you are saying, it gives you permission to hold them accountable as well. Reciprocity and mutualistic investment is the key. In the words of the great Denzel Washington, each one teach one. In the terms of our culture of risk aversion, this is a topic well worth participating in from both sides. Risk is a universal constant of life. It lurks around every corner, mostly around things that are important. The key is not in its avoidance nor its full embracement. Instead, it's a gentle dance, a back and forth, a nip and tuck, a bob and weave. The skills needed to hone it are all in the balance of how we interact with it. It is neither good nor bad. It is just something that is. Dealing with things as they are is the only way to deal with them. Honesty is, indeed, the best policy. Especially when dealing with sea bears and or sea rhinoceroses. Okay. All right, everybody. So that is the post of this week. I thought it was just an interesting thing to explore, kind of, you know, pick your, pick your guys' brains on something a little bit. So hopefully you thought the same, but I don't know. So, I mean, that's what this is all for. So at the end of the day, guys, have a great weekend, a great week ahead. Own the day. Open your mind. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll talk to you guys next week. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nino Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?